promise we had it all wrong circa 2007 uh, it's so true these mind games control you passion is full of its own hue cold blue so in old news with my whole crew was mixing partners just follow suit switching garments like mr rogers the trend is blend in hindsight is a vogue view so let's be honest some numbers you just don't lose uh, I promise they mean well Following good intentions The chances you'll see hell Funny hell Never mind, never mind Welcome to the Belfast Podcast The podcast dedicated to those deconstructing And reconstructing their faith I'm your host, Luke Byler Today is going to be something really different I hope that it's enriching I hope that it's challenging I hope that it's thought-provoking Today, I'm going to read a portion of a book that has been in my life for a while, a book that I finally decided to read through. Um, It's by a man whose content I've been following for over a year now. Uh, And I think it's a vital discussion that no one's having. I think it gets underneath some things that people don't want to admit or maybe don't want to talk about. Um, and it might sound odd that I put this conversation here on this podcast, but the why I put it here is because what he hits on here is what I want to do with this podcast, really, um, the underlying ethic that he has of uh, being able to actually listen, not being ideologically possessed, not just wanting to give people advice, are all things that I've seen go horribly wrong. In, in people's lives in, in church and the faith. Um, you know, we see very public examples of that with uh, pastors and, and, and Hillsong worship leaders and, and, and all of that. Um, and Morris Hill and just there's a gamut of them. I can't name them all, but we see that a lot. Um, an interesting tidbit about it is I have a friend who um, put a post on his Instagram. It was uh, like a he posed a question and he said, uh, he said something about the rapture and he asked, you know, not asking if you believed in it or not, but just how did, how did the, uh, the eschatology of the rapture and how that has affected people, whether they believe in it now or not. But his responses were really interesting to me. He had responses of people, one in particular that I can't shake this guy that said, yeah, I no longer believe in, in the rapture, but I was raised on that idea that um, eschatology growing up and I saw left behind when I was young. And I was like, he said that he was eight or so when he watched it. And he said that that is the only recurring nightmare he still has and he's in his 20s. And I don't know if I'd read that before or after I read this portion of this book, but later, if it was later, I, I, that popped in my head and I thought that is, that is being the victim of an ideology. I don't want to create that at all in faith and in, 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 in other arenas. So I just, I put this conversation here because I think it's one that's needed in, in everywhere but especially in faith. And it's something I'm trying to 
honestly fight against is the ideological possession of people in, in Christianity. So, and this almost insistence to one side or the other and to never ask questions and, and all of that. I, I think it's very unhealthy. I think it's a, I think it's abhorrent. So, yeah, that's why I put this here. The book is 12 Rules for Life by Dr. Jordan Peterson. Dr. Peterson has been instrumental in many things in my life in the past year. Uh, it wouldn't be a stretch at all to say he's changed my life. So I thank him for that. Uh, what I'm reading now is from Rule 9. The rule is assume the person you're listening to might know something you don't. And he, in the first bit, gives a meditation on what it means to give advice. And talks about what it means then to actually listen to somebody instead of give advice. Talks about what it means to look at the problems individually, not ideologically. And then in turn also not steal somebody's problems from them, but work with them to find solutions to get through them. And he has a, a meditation at the very end about the stories we tell about our problems and about other people's problems. And again, how to not look at them ideologically, but to look at them individually. And maybe the disaster that can come from looking at them, looking at them ideologically. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of a synopsis of the things he hits on. Uh, some people has, have said that he is hard to follow, and I will agree. Unless you're familiar with his content, he is difficult to follow in all the branches that his brain makes. Um, but I feel like this portion of this chapter is pretty solid in its form. So without further ado, I... We'll read the portion of the chapter, and then at the end I will give some thoughts about how I think this rule can be implemented in, in our lives, how it's played out in my life, and what he says that I think is of, of note. So, rule nine, assume the person you're listening to might know something you don't. Not advice. Psychotherapy is not advice. Advice is what you get when the person you're talking with about something terrible and complicated wishes you would just shut up and go away. Advice is what you get when the person you're talking to wants to revel in the superiority of his or her own intelligence. If you were so stupid, after all, you wouldn't have your stupid problems. Psychotherapy is genuine conversation. Genuine conversation is exploration, articulation, and strategizing. When you're involved in a genuine conversation, you're listening and talking but mostly listening. Listening is paying attention. It's amazing what people will tell you if you listen. Sometimes if you listen to people, they will even tell you what's wrong with them. Sometimes they'll even tell you how they plan to fix it. Sometimes that helps you fix something wrong with yourself. One surprising time, and this is only one occasion of many, which such things have happened, I was, I was listening to someone very carefully. And she told me within minutes, A, that she was a witch, and B, that her witch convent spent a lot of time visualizing world peace together. She was a long-time lower-level functionary in some bureaucratic job. 
I would never have guessed that she was a witch. I also didn't know that witch convents spent any of their time visualizing world peace. I didn't know what to make of it either, but it wasn't boring, and that's something. In my clinical practice, I talk and listen. I talk more to some people and listen more to others. Many of the people I listen to have no one else to talk to. Some of them are truly alone in the world. There are far more people like that than you think. You don't meet them because they're alone. Others are surrounded by tyrants or narcissists or drunks or traumatized people or professional victims. Some are not good at articulating themselves. They go off on tangents. They repeat themselves. They say vague and contradictory things. They're hard to listen to. Others have terrible things happening around them. They have parents with Alzheimer's, sick children. There's no such time left over for their personal concerns. One time, a client who I'd been seeing for a few months came into my office for a scheduled appointment, and after some brief preliminaries, she announced, I think I was raped. It's not easy to know how to respond to a statement like that, although there's frequently some mystery around such events. Often alcohol is involved, as it is in most sexual assault cases. Alcohol can cause ambiguity. That's partially why people drink. Alcohol temporarily lifts the terrible burden of self-consciousness for people. Drunk people know about the future, but they don't care about it. That's exciting. That's exhilarating. Drunk people can party like there's no tomorrow. But because there is a tomorrow, most of the time, drunk people also get in trouble. They black out. They go to dangerous places with careless people. They have fun, but they also get raped. So I immediately thought something like that might be involved. How else to understand, I think. But that wasn't the end of the story. She added an extra detail. Five times. The first sentence was awful enough, but the second produced something unfathomable. Five times? What could that possibly mean? My client told me that she would go to bars and have a few drinks. Someone would start talking with her. She would end up at his place or her place with him. The evening would proceed inevitably to its sexual climax. The next day, she would wake up, uncertain about what happened, uncertain about her motives, uncertain about his motives, and uncertain about the world. Miss S., we'll call her, was vague to the point of non-existence. She was a ghost of a person. She dressed, however, like a professional. She knew how to present herself for first appearances. In consequence, she had finagled her way into a government advisory board considering the construction of a major piece of transportation infrastructure, even though she knew nothing about government advising, or construction. She also hosted a local public access radio show dedicated to small business, even though she had never held a real job and knew nothing about being an entrepreneur. She had been receiving welfare payments for the entirety of her adulthood. Her parents had never provided her with a minute of attention. She had four brothers, and they were not all that good to her. She had no friends now and none in the past. She had no partner. She had no one to talk to, and she didn't know how to think on her own. That's not rare. She had no self. She was, instead, a walking cacophony of unintegrated experiences. I tried previously to help her find a job. I asked her if she had a CV. She said yes. I asked her to bring it to me. She brought it to our next session. It was 50 pages long. It was in a file-folded box, divided into sections with manila tag separators, the ones with the little colorful index markers on the inside. The sections included such topics as my dreams and books I have read. She had written down dozens of her nighttime dreams in the My Dreams section and provided brief summaries and reviews of her reading material. That was what she proposed to send to prospective employers, or perhaps already had, who really knows. People like her are the reason 
that the many forms of psychotherapy currently practiced all work. People can be so confused that their psyches will be ordered and their lives improved by the adoption of any reasonably orderly system of interpretation. This is the bringing together of the desperate elements of their lives into a disciplinary manner, any discipline manner. So, if you've come apart at the seams, or if you never have been together at all, you can reconstruct your life on Freudian, Jungian, Alderian, Rogerian, or behavioral principles. At least then you make sense. At least then you're coherent. At least then you might be good for something, if not good yet for everything. You can't fix a car with an axe, but you can cut down a tree. That's still something. About the same time I was seeing this client, the media was all afire with stories of recovering memories, particularly of sexual assault. The dispute raged opaque. Were these genuine accounts of past trauma, or were they post hoc constructions, dreamed up as a consequence of pressure, wittingly or unwittingly applied by incautious therapists? grasped onto desperately by the clinical clients, all too eager to find a simple cause for all their trouble. Sometimes it was the former, perhaps, and sometimes the latter. I understood much more clearly and precisely, however, how easily it might be to instill a false memory into the mental landscape as soon as my client revealed her uncertainty about her sexual experiences. The past appears fixed, but it is not. Not in an important psychological sense. There's an awful lot of the past, after all and the way we organize it can be subject to drastic revision. Imagine, for example, a movie where nothing terrible, where nothing but terrible things happen, but in the end, everything works out. Everything is resolved. A sufficiently happy ending can change the meaning of all the previous events. They can all be viewed as worthwhile given that ending. Now imagine another movie. A lot of things are happening. There's, they're all exciting and interesting, but there are a lot of them. 90 minutes in, you start to worry. This is a great movie, you think. But there are a lot of things going on. I sure hope the filmmaker can pull it all together. But that doesn't happen. Instead, the story ends, abruptly, unresolved, or some facile and cliched occurs. You leave deeply annoyed and unsatisfied, failing to notice that you are fully engaged and enjoying the movie almost the whole time you were in the theater. The present can change the past, and the future can change the present. When you're remembering the past as well, you remember some parts of it and forget others. You have clear memories of some things that happened, but not others, of potentially equal importance. Just as in the present, you are unaware of some aspects of your surroundings and unconscious of others. You categorize your experience, grouping some elements together, and separate them from the rest. There is a mysterious arbitrariness about all of this. You don't form a comprehensive objective record. You can't. You just don't know enough. You just can't perceive enough. You're not objective either. You're alive. You're subjective. You have vested interest, at least in yourself, at least usually. What exactly should be included in the story? What exactly is the border between events? The sexual abuse of children is distressingly common. However, it's not as common as poorly trained therapists think, and it also does not always produce terribly damaged adults. People vary in their resilience. An event that will wipe one person out can be shrugged off by another. But therapists with a little secondhand knowledge of Freud often axiomatically assume that a distressed adult in their practice must have been subject to childhood sexual abuse. Why else would they be distressed? So they dig and infer and intimate and suggest and overreact and bias and tilt. They exaggerate the importance of some events and downplay the importance of others. They trim the facts to fit their theory and they convince their client that they were sexually abused. If they could only remember, and the client starts to remember, and then they start to accuse, 
and sometimes what they remember never happened, and the people accused are innocent. The good news? At least the therapist's theory remained intact. That's good for the therapist, but there's no shortage of collateral damage. However, people are often willing to produce a lot of collateral damage if they can retain their theory. I knew all about this when Miss S came to me about her sexual experiences. When she recounted her trip to the singles bars and their recurring aftermath, I thought a bunch of things at once. I thought, you're so vague and so non-existent. You're a denizen of chaos in the underworld. You're, not, you're going 10 different places at the same time. Anyone can take you by the hand and guide you down the road of their choosing. After all, if you're not the leading man in your own drama, you're a bit player in someone else's, and you might well be assigned to play a dismal, lonely, and tragic part. After Miss S. recounted her story, we sat there. I thought, you have normal sexual desires. You're extremely lonely. You're unfulfilled sexually. You're afraid of men and ignorant of the world and know nothing of yourself. You wander around like an accident waiting to happen, and the accident happens. And that's your life. I thought, part of you wants to be taken. Part of you wants to be a child. You were abused by your brothers and ignored by your father. And so part of you wants revenge upon men. Part of you is guilty. Another part is ashamed. Another part is thrilled and excited. Who are you? What did you do? What happened? What is the objective truth? There was no way of knowing the, tr the objective truth, and there never would be. There was no objective observer, and there never would be. There was no complete and accurate story. Such a thing did not and could not exist. There were and are only partial accounts and fragmentary viewpoints. But some are still better than others. Memory is not a description of the objective past. Memory is a tool. Memory is the past guide to the future. If you remember that something bad happened, and you can figure out why, then you can try to avoid that bad thing happening again. That's the purpose of memory. It's not to remember the past. It's to stop the same damn thing from happening over and over. I thought, I could simplify Miss S's life. I could say that her suspicions of rape were fully justified, and that her doubt about the events was nothing but additional evidence of her thorough and long-term victimization. I could insist that her sexual partners had a legal obligation to ensure that she was not impaired by alcohol to give consent. I could tell that she had indisputably been subject to violent and illicit acts unless she had consented to each sexual move explicitly and verbally. I could tell her that she was an innocent victim. I could have told her all that, and it would have been true, and she would have accepted it as true and remembered it for the rest of her life. She would have been a new person with a new history and a new destiny. But I also thought I could tell her that she wanders into bars like a courtesan in a coma and that she is a danger to herself and others, that she needs to wake up. And then if she goes to singles bars and drinks too much and is taken home and has rough sex or even tender caring sex, then what the hell does she expect? In other words, I could have told her in more philosophical terms that she was Nietzsche's pale criminal the person who at one moment dares to break the sacred law and at the next shrinks from paying its price. And that would have been true too, and she would have accepted it as such and remembered it. If I had been the adherent of a left-wing socially justice ideology, I would have told her the first story. If I had been the adherent of a conservative ideology, I would have told her the second. And her response, after having been told either the first or the second story, would have proved to my satisfaction and hers that the story I told her was true, completely, irrefutably true. And that would have been advice. I decided instead to listen. I've learned not to steal my clients' problems from them. I didn't want to be re the redeeming hero or the deus ex machina 
not in someone else's story. I don't want their lives. So I asked her to tell me what she thought, and I listened. She talked a lot. When we were finished, she still didn't know if she'd been raped, and neither did I. Life is very complicated. Sometimes you have to change the way you understand everything to properly understand a single something. Was I raped can be a very complicated question. The mere fact that the question would present itself in that form indicates the existence of infinite layers of complexity, to say nothing of five times. There are a myriad of questions hidden inside, was I raped? Was it rape? What is consent? What constitutes appropriate sexual caution? What should a person def how should a person defend herself? What, where does the fault lie? Was I raped is a hydra. If you cut off the head of the hydra, seven more grow. That's life. Miss S would have had to talk for 20 years to figure out whether she had been raped, and someone would have had to been there to listen. I started the process, but circumstances made it impossible for me to finish. She left therapy with me only somewhat less ill-informed and vague than when she had first met me. But at least she didn't leave the living embodiment of my damned ideology. At least she didn't leave the living embodiment of my damned ideology. I'll be honest. I read that about three weeks ago. I've subsequently finished the book since uh, recording the, the video. Um, but I cannot stop thinking about that quote. Alicia didn't leave the living embodiment of my damned ideology. Because if you would have told her one of those two stories about her life, about the consequences of her actions, about why things went for her the way that they did, as you said, she would have accepted it as true and believed it and lived out that narrative. And she would have been the embodiment of his ideology, whichever one he gave her. And I think this rule of assuming that the person you're listening to might know something you don't is helpful. And I'll give two scenarios in which it is helpful. One I have become more successful in and one I was not successful in at all. Uh, the first being one that I'm becoming more successful in. And that is letting someone that you disagree with have their full say. And now for me, this has happened um, in different ways in the social and political climate that we find ourselves in in the U.S. Um, I am someone who, even from a young age, would always want to hear the other side, quote-unquote, whatever that other side was. Because I always wanted to say, well, I want to know what they think. Um, and sometimes it was to know what they think, to say, 
well, then here's all the other ways that I disagree with you. Um, and I don't know if that's a very virtuous way of, of looking at it. Um, but I think the better way to look at it and the way that I've tried to grow in looking at it is to say, look, I don't have all the facts and I don't know everything. If I would, I would be God. So I'm going to need you, whoever I'm talking to, whether I slightly disagree with you, wholly disagree with you, or don't really disagree with you, we're going to disagree on something and not let that disagreement squash the fact that we can have a civil discussion we might even be friends. But to say, look, you can point out stupid things about me or about how I look at things or about how I'm going about this certain situation. And I need to have the humility to take that, to process it, and then to say, okay, here's what I see now that you've given me that information. I think that's what's, again, at the, at the bottom of, of kind of what Jordan's talking about here. It's this idea of humility. To assume that the person you're talking to might know something you don't assumes you don't know everything, which is true. Because you can't, as he says, you can't know everything. So I've had to, I almost said, had to have to humiliate myself. No, I have to humble myself again and again and again and again. When I want to get the last word in, when I, when I want to have the last say, when I want to have that point that's going to prove everybody wrong, when I have that point that's just going to shut everybody up. You know, I might make it, but I might say it in a different way. I might offer my thoughts, but I might do it more graciously. Always leaving the door open for the fact that there's going to be things that I don't know. Now, this doesn't mean that all truth is subjective. That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we never speak the truth and, and correct people when, when we think they're wrong. No, 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 no. I don't think this, this is what that means at all. It's a posture of humility. It's a posture of learning. It's a posture of saying, look, I'm limited in the way I see things because I'm human. And I have a certain perception because of my personality, because of how I've grown up, because of my relationships. And I'm going to need to know other things from other people because they're going to see things that I don't. And I'm going to assume that people I talk to might know something I don't. Doesn't mean they're right. Doesn't mean that their argument has to win. Doesn't mean you're even playing to win. That's the other part of it. And that's what I love in, in his final vignette there where he talks about uh, the, the, the patient he had, his client. You know, he says, I try not to steal my patient's problems from them. I don't want to be God in their story. I'm not the deus ex machina. I'm not the one to swoop in and save everybody's problems. And I think us Christians struggle from that a lot. 
but I think that we can learn something from having the humility to say, look, I don't know everything. And I'm willing, I'm willing to say that I don't know everything. And I'm willing to listen and assume that you might know something I don't. So I've been doing that very well in some of my, in a lot of my friendships um, and in, in a lot of the political social discussion that's been going on in the U.S. Um, I've been really, really trying to take a, a position of humility and saying, look, I, uh, I want to listen. I want to hear some viewpoints I might not even agree with because I know I could be missing some things. Uh, let the let the listener understand that statement. Uh, the the way I didn't do it very well, and the way that I would like to implement it better in the future, is uh, I think in romantic relationships this works really well. Uh, especially, and this doesn't even have to be romantic. This can be in in friendships, in 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 the way that things happen within the relationship, is to say that uh, you go to them and you say, "Look, look, I know." You might know something I don't about me. And I'm going to need you to be gracious in how you say it to me. I'm going to need you to be uh, kind. That's one of Ravi Zacharias' rules, actually, is what he said. He said, I, he told this to every uh, couple newly married that would ever ask him about what's what's advice that he would give to, to them. Uh, and he said, there's no reason to not be kind. Doesn't mean you're nice. Doesn't mean you don't say things that could be hurtful. Doesn't mean that uh, you don't tell the truth. It just means that you give it in a way that's not intended to be malicious. So I did not do that well at all in my last relationship. I did not listen as if the person I was talking to might know something that I didn't. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I assume superiority. Um, some of it had to do with age, some of it had to do with maturity. Um, some of it had to just do with pride and hubris. Uh, and I, and as I said in my last point, I'm really trying to lay that down and just say, look, I'm going to have a rule that when I'm speaking with somebody, when we're having a dialogue, when we're having an actual conversation where we both are trying to learn something new. We both are trying to push our understandings of a specific topic, of each other, of how our relationships work, of whatever it may be, that I'm going to assume that you might know something I don't. So I'm going to be open to listening. And this means that you're going to hear things that you don't want to hear but much like King Arthur's Knights at the Round Table when they go and look for the Holy Grail, many times what you don't want to find and what you need to know are in the exact same spot. And that's why I think this rule is so powerful. I think this rule is powerful for us right now. So divided um, politically, socially, as a church, humility, 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 humility.
let's not be possessed by ideologies. Let's not have our narrative win at any cost. Again, whatever narrative that might be. And again, this happens in every arena. So I'm not just talking politics here. I'm not just talking politics. I'm not just talking social issues. Don't let your narrative be the one that has to win in your relationship, in your family, in your church, in your friend group. Because if that's the case, then you are ideologically possessed. And then I'm ideologically possessed. And to quote Marty Solomon on the Tower of Babel, and maybe I'll make a whole video about this, a whole podcast about this. Building towers of correctness never put the world back together. Say it again. Building towers of correctness never put the world back together. It's only when we sit down with our different perspectives and our different ideas in search of truth. And the, the goal of the conversation that is constructive, the goal of the relationship that is Christ-like, the goal of the church that is Christ-like, the goal of humanity that is God-like, that is the image-bearing people of God, the goal must be to be true, to be truly human, to seek the good of everybody, to honor Christ, to be salt, to be light, to be a city on a hill. It shines. And that doesn't happen by building towers of correctness. It happens in part by having the humility to say, look, I'm trusting that I will be in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will guide me to the truth. I'm trusting you, my partner, my friend, my my lover, my spouse, that you're guided in the same direction. So we're going to talk and we're going to listen and we're going to assume that who we're listening to might know something we don't because the Spirit in them might want to reveal something to us that we don't know. I'll end with a, another quote from the book that I didn't read, but it's in the same chapter. All right. This quote comes from, uh, from, from the book, and Peterson here quotes Carl Rogers. A little introduction. This is on page 245 for anyone who's curious. Um, the title of this section is, How Should You Listen? Carl Rogers, one of the 20th century's greatest psychotherapists, knew something about listening. He wrote, the great majority of us cannot listen. We find ourselves compelled to evaluate because listening is too dangerous. The first requirement is courage. I would add humility. And we do not always have it. He knew that listening could transform people. On that, Rogers commented, some of you may be feeling that you listen well to other people and that you have never seen... Some of you may be feeling that you listen well to people and that you have never seen such results. 
the chances are very great indeed that your listening has not been of the type I have described. The great majority of us cannot listen. We find ourselves compelled to evaluate because listening is too dangerous. The first requirement is courage, and we do not always have it. Again, if you find this interesting, if you have not read the rule, I would encourage you to read all of it. I think there's so much there that is very necessary for us to understand and know if we are going to be people who listen, if we're going to be people who aren't ideological. With that, I think I'm finished. I don't, I don't have anything more to say. I would feel like I'm just rambling. So thank you very much for listening. As always, this has been the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. You can find me on Instagram at Luke underscore Byler 816. You can find the Belfast Podcast at the Belfast Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at that. You can email us at belfastpodcast.gmail.com. Please give us a rate and a review. It always helps. If you saw the video and you are now here, please give us a like and subscribe. Uh, more videos coming out. Um, I'm tempted to do a series on the rules from 12 Rules. Um, I have an idea for another video I'd like to do already. So if you guys want to see that, um, please email me, comment, whatever. Let me know. Um, so I hope this has been enriching. I hope it's been challenging. I hope that it's been edifying and helpful. I hope it's been helpful. Let us have the courage and the humility to assume that the person we're listening to might know something we don't. I'll see you all next time.
listen to me. Never mind, yeah. never mind. I just ain't going they route. Know what they on, what they bout. And I ain't got the time to play their mind games. Yeah. Man, Every year the circle getting smaller cause I keep putting squares out GPS friends only concerned with my whereabouts Say they wanna hear me out only to air me out I'm like a new shirt to these cats, they wear me 